Uh, we're doing our study of the book of Luke, and it just happens to be by divine providence or my strategizing, but probably more divine providence than anything, that we're in this Christmas passage here in the book of Luke uh, as we're going through this book verse by verse. So Luke chapter 2, we'll start with verse 1, we'll go to verse 7. This is my second pass on these seven verses. I want to entitle this message, A Life Interrupted. A Life Interrupted. Some of you uh, maybe saw the movie, uh, I didn't, but with uh, Angela Jolie, uh, A Girl Interrupted, or A Life of a Girl Interrupted. The Interrupted Girl, something like that. Uh, well, this, this sermon has nothing to do with that, so we don't even think about that movie. This is a totally different thing. Too much coffee. And the question I want us to be asking ourselves this morning is this. It's a very, very, very important question. Uh, please don't file this under the category of loony. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very important question. Do you really believe that God can and God wants to talk to you? On a daily basis. Not just you talking to God, but God talking to you. Do you believe that you, little you, little me, I'm not talking just about the, the high and mighty religious people in the world, but little you and little me, that God, the creator of the universe, wants to and can talk to you and talk to me. He wants to lead our steps, guide us. Um, he wants to be in communication all the time. I want you to be thinking about that question. And even more importantly, are we really, in our heart of hearts, open to God interrupting our life, interrupting our plans, interrupting our dreams to carry out his own plans and his own dreams in our life? And to get at this, this very important issue, I want to uh, look at the life of Joseph. Um, Christmas time, we always talk about Jesus, of course, and we often talk about Mary, but Joseph really gets shortchanged. We don't, we don't like hold him up as, as, as a hero. And I want to submit to you this morning that this guy is, is a kingdom hero. He's a model of what it is to live in the kingdom, precisely because he was willing to let his life be interrupted by a God dream, by God speaking to him. And he walked in that. So let's read from the book of Luke. And I'm also going to then turn to the book of Matthew. And I'm reading from the TNIV version, which in my opinion is the best version out there. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was now expecting a child. While they were there, and by the way, in the first century, if you heard this, you would immediately be scandalized. She was pledged to be married, but she was pregnant with child. Those two things don't go together in the first century. When you're pledged to be married in the first century, in first century Jewish culture, you are officially married. You had to get, have an official action, a legal action to get out of this engagement, but you didn't have conjugal relationships yet, all right? So to be pregnant before you're actually married, uh, in the full sense of the word, was scandalous. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for him, or it could be translated, there was no room in the inn. And I gave all the historical background to this two weeks ago, so I don't want to repeat all of that. Uh, the book of Matthew. Here's the parallel passage to the passage we just read. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. And verse 24. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. 
His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, before they were married in the full sense of the term, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly, or it could be translated, in secret. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And then in verse 24 it says, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do. He obeyed the Lord and took Mary home as his wife. A little background, and then we're going to apply this uh, to our life here today. The, the background story is this. Uh, in the ancient Jewish world, and first century, people typically got married between the ages of 13 to 15 or 16. Uh, the average age for a girl was 12, 13, or 14. The average age for a guy was slightly older than that. So if, uh, if, if these two are pretty typical for the first century, they were teenagers, early teenagers. Envision Mary as a 13-year-old and Joseph maybe as a 15 or 16-year-old. Some speculate that Joseph had been married before and his wife had died or whatever, but we're not told that. And so just going from what we know in the first century, they're probably teenagers. They come from a small town. It's the town of Nazareth. It's so small, it didn't even make it on the registers of the ancient world. A podunk town, probably 50 to 200 or 300 people at the most. Uh, during this time, they're pledged to be married, but they, yet, they haven't yet had the wedding. And typically what would happen is uh, once the, the, the two were pledged together, and often that was arranged by the parents, uh, the man would then go, out, go away, sometimes for up to a year, would build a house for his wife and future family, would try to gain a reputation in the community because reputation was very important in the ancient world, and would try to establish a business, some means of income to support his new wife and uh, their, their future family if they in fact had a family. Um, all of the teachings about Jesus going away and preparing a place for us and the parables about the bridegroom coming and the, 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 the bride needing to be ready when the bridegroom comes, they all presuppose this marriage uh, uh, sort of scenario where you're legally married, but the wedding hasn't happened yet. This is actually the state that all believers are in with the Lord. Uh, we haven't yet had the wedding feast, but we are legally married to the Lord. We're in this betrothal period. He went away to prepare a place for us. He's going to come back and, uh, and, and receive us as his bride. Uh, so Joseph, during this time, is, is uh, building this house, making a reputation, and establishing a business. Uh, like every teenager, he's got dreams. He's got plans. He's planning on building a good house. He wants to be a carpenter uh, and, and uh, uh, get an established business. Perhaps he's got dreams of of someday moving out a little podunk Nazareth and going to uh, Sepphoris or Capernaum, one of the bigger cities, uh, where perhaps he could, as a carpenter, work for some wealthy people. Uh, a lot of carpenters did that. You can make more money that way and even perhaps get a business for yourself where people are working under you, whatever. But he had dreams. But as most of us know, life has a funny way of interrupting our dreams, doesn't it? Sometimes a funny way of squishing our dreams, and it's not very funny when it happens. And so Joseph's dreams, Joseph's plans begin to get interrupted. It starts when Mary announces to him that she's pregnant. This is absolutely scandalous in the first century. Uh, to, be, to become pregnant before marriage is scandalous. To do so while you're pledged to another man is the most scandalous thing. Uh, this is shocking news. Um, 
And uh, uh, she has this wild story about how the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and that's how she got pregnant. But Joseph, neither Joseph nor anybody else, is going to be very open to believing that. Sometimes we modern people think that ancient people were just gullible and believed tall tales all the time, but uh, there's a lot of archaeological evidence that suggests that they're about as critically minded as we are today. This would have been, wouldn't have been much more believable in the first century than it would be today. Uh, clearly, Joseph didn't believe her because he was planning on divorcing her. And he was going to put her away quietly or in secret. A lot of guys would have uh, maybe uh, made a public stand over this thing. Uh, a lot of men in the first century especially would have been more worried about their own reputation than anything else. And so they would have, as soon as they found out that their fiancé uh, is pregnant, they could have gone public and said, my wife or my fiancé is pregnant and I didn't do it. Uh, now she's got this wild story about the Holy Spirit or whatever, but, but I, I'm coming clean uh, on this. I didn't do it and I'm, therefore I'm going to divorce her. And everyone would have understood that and respected that. But Joseph was a kind man. It says he was a righteous man. And uh, Mary's life is going to be hard enough uh, having this happen to her. Uh, And so he decides to divorce her uh, quietly and not make a bigger scandal out of it than it would already be. Then Joseph gets his own dream. And in this dream, the angel shows up and basically says, Joseph, uh, Mary's telling you the truth. Uh, this, This pregnancy is from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, to his credit, takes that dream seriously and obeys the angel that appeared in that dream. And the minute Joseph says yes to the command of the angel and marries Mary, uh, the minute he lays hold of the dream that God gave him, he's got to let go of his own dreams. His life is going to now get very interesting and rather rocky. Uh, Doing this is going to produce a scandal. Uh, his friends are going, and family are going to think that he's trying to cover up for Mary's uh, immoral behavior and maybe his own immoral behavior. That's why they're coming up with this tall tale with all these dreams or whatever. Or if they did believe Joseph that he really did have this dream or something, they're just going to think he's a little bit crazy. Either way, this isn't going to help his reputation and accomplish the dreams that he had. But things go from bad to worse. Caesar has a decree. He wants to take a census. He wants to know who he can tax and who he can enlist in his army. So everyone's got to return to their hometown. And now Joseph and Mary travel to Bethlehem. Uh, When he wanted to be out building the house, getting a reputation and and, and, and getting a business going, now he's unemployed and he's got a wife who's got a child in her that's not his own, and they have to travel to Bethlehem. And they would have been thinking questions like, how are we going to support ourselves? How are we going to live for the several months we've got to stay in Bethlehem while they're taking this census? Remember, we're in the first century, not the 21st century. So they don't have welfare. They don't have unemployment checks. They don't have insurance. There's no social safety nets. You swim or sink on your own. And uh, peasants in Nazareth didn't have hefty bank accounts to fall back on. You live hand to mouth in the first century. So now Joseph, this wasn't part of his plan. He's now got to support this, this wife and uh, this, this child while traveling to Bethlehem, and he's unemployed. Things go from worse to even worse. As they show up at Bethlehem, and there's no room in the inn. The one commercial inn, in all likelihood, uh, the one commercial inn in Bethlehem is full because everyone's going to their hometown to register for this, uh, this, this census. And so they get there too late. Uh, Mary's eight, nine months pregnant. Uh, and now they've got to stay in the barn where people park their... Me- They're vehicles of transportation in the first century. 
If the inn is overcrowded, you know the barn is overcrowded. Now, sometimes in the manger scenes we have today, uh, you know, you'd think there'd be no better place to have a child than in this manger scene. You know, it's, it's, it's so holy and pure, and the hay is so clean, and the animals are so sweet, and the star is twinkling for crying out loud, and, and Mary and Joseph look so serene. But the reality of the situation is that you could not think of a worse situation to have a child. Uh, the barn would have been, in all likelihood, a cave. That's where uh, most commercial inns were built around caves so they could keep the animals in the caves. So you have an overcrowded, animal-filled, stench-filled, unventilated, cold cave that these kids are staying in. Uh, they find some corner of this makeshift barn, and they push the cow pies aside, and that's going to be their dwelling place for any length of time. And it's in that condition that Mary then goes into labor. And we've got to be realistic about this as well. They didn't have Lamaze classes back then. They didn't have preparation videos or courses that you could take to learn out how to, how, you know, how to have a baby. Uh, these are two kids. They've never even had sex. They don't know what to expect. Some of us who have been through, witnessed, and participated in, gave birth to children, know that even with all the preparation classes in the world, it's a scary, scary, uh, wonderful thing. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's, it, it's bizarre. These are two kids. They don't know what's going on. Now see, Joseph, as he thought about his future family and, and bringing children into the world, his plan, his dream was certainly to have a nice, warm home. And there's going to be a midwife there who knows what's going on. And there'll be all sorts of other women there. Having a baby in the first century was a community event. All the neighbors come over, and the women are all there in the room, and they're giving their advice, and there's a lot of support. And then the community gets together and celebrates for eight days. That's how you're supposed to have children in the first century. But instead, we've got two lonely, scared teenagers in an overcrowded barn, and Mary's going into labor, and that's where, where the, the baby is born. This isn't what Joseph had planned on. Things even get worse from there. We don't know how long they were in Bethlehem, but it was probably for a, uh, you know, some length of time. We don't know how Joseph supported the family, how they ate or anything. He must have just hustled odd jobs as a carpenter. But at some point, all of a sudden, Joseph gets another dream, and this dream says, run for your life. The king of Judea, Herod, is after your baby. And so I want you to go into Egypt. And so now the, this, these newlywed teenagers have got to run to Egypt. They don't know Egypt. They don't know Egyptian language. They don't know anyone in Egypt. They don't, have, they don't know anything about Egyptian customs or anything like that. They're going to a foreign land with this newborn baby. Um, uh, this is not part of what Joseph planned on. Imagine yourself, a teenager, newly married with a newborn baby, and now God tells you in a dream, go to South Korea. Take the $10 you got and go to South Korea. And you say, but I don't know Korean, and I don't know Korean customs, and I don't know any Korean people. What am I supposed to do for a living? And the Lord responds by saying, just go. Just, this is what I want you to do. So now these guys got to go to Egypt. And sometime later on, Joseph gets yet another dream some years later and they, and they, when Herod dies and they can move back to Nazareth, which maybe you would think would be good news, and I'm sure it was to some degree good news, but also remember, this is where their reputation is mud. And in the, Jewish, in, the, in the first century Jewish world, you don't live down that reputation. You take that one with you to your grave. Uh, Joseph married a loose woman and maybe he had something to do with that. That would have been the reputation. And so whatever else they did in their life in Nazareth after this time, it wouldn't be what Joseph dreamed of being. He'll never be a pillar in the community. On top of this, we know that Joseph died soon after this. 
Certainly by the time Jesus' ministry comes around, we don't hear about Joseph anymore. He, he's, he, he apparently is dead. When, when Jesus dies, Mary is there, but Joseph isn't there. And the point of all that is to say this. Uh, Joseph had a sense that God was up to something, but he never lived long enough to see exactly what it was. He didn't see the miracles of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. He didn't see the birth of the early church. So here's a man who said yes to God's dream and let go of all of his own dreams, and he never lived to see the fruit of it. And I want to submit to you this morning that this makes Joseph a, a paradigmatic kingdom hero. A person who is willing to say yes to God, to let his life be seriously interrupted without any consideration for what, what was in it for him, how it would inconvenience his life, what it would do to his plans, or what kind of recognition, recognition he could get. He allowed his life to be interrupted because he was willing to obey a dream. And it's for that reason, and that reason alone, that he could be used by God as a tool to bring the kingdom into the world. Our life mission, kingdom people, is to be just that. To be the kind of person that God can use to, in whatever shape, way, and manner, to bring the kingdom into this world a little more than it was before. But to do that, we must be a people who are listening to God and allow God to change our plans, to interrupt our life. We must be a people who are willing to obey God. Now, you may be thinking that uh, really Joseph had no choice. Um, I mean, after all, uh, an angel showed up, you know, and, and who can say no to an angel? Uh, you might be thinking, gosh, if an angel showed up to me and said, I want you to do something or other, I'd certainly do it because I'm not going to fight with an angel. And so it may seem to you that this was too obvious for Joseph to really say no to. And that maybe you're saying, I wish, I wish God would show up that obvious to me. If God was that obvious to me, well, then I'd certainly know what to do and I would certainly obey. But I want to suggest to you that, as a matter of fact, Joseph had a real choice, which is why the Bible praises him for the choice he made. He could have easily denied this dream. He could have easily ignored this dream. It was, after all, just a dream. And how many of us take seriously even the most vivid of dreams? When you wake up, you could ignore a dream or pay attention to it. Joseph very easily could have said, "Yeah, these dreams, i got to stop eating pastrami before I go to bed. Uh, but I'm going to go on with my life. I'm going to build that house. I'll marry somebody else. I'm going to get a good reputation. And I'm going to uh, get a good business going for me. He could have done that. But see, instead, he recognized in this dream that God was speaking to him. Now, here's, here's a very important principle. God rarely, there are a few exceptions, but God rarely forces himself on people. He's rarely so obvious he can't be denied. That's why God usually speaks to his people through dreams, through visions, through inner words, through promptings, uh, what we would today call intuitions. He speaks through those means. Um, he, he, he never makes himself coercively obvious. Now, we, looking back on the event, think it's obvious. But I submit to you that this dream would have been no more obvious to Joseph than it would have been to any of us. There's always a choice that we can make. God shows up uh, in, in subtle ways because he doesn't want to be coercively obvious because God wants to be the kind of God where our relationship to him is conditioned by the openness of our heart and the willingness of our faith to see and hear what he's got to show and say. He wants to be a God who's, who, who's not a Machiavellian ruler. He doesn't show up like the giant head in the Wizard of Oz uh, in order to intimidate us to do what he wants us to do. 
Rather, he shows up in a way that, uh, that requires on our part a willingness, a choice to either obey or disobey. And the question I want us to be asking is this. Have we or are we in our life cultivating the kind of heart that is looking for God, that is uh, uh, developing a capacity to discern when God is speaking to us? Here's a, here's a universal psychological phenomenon. Um, or let me give this principle before I go on to this. God gives enough revelation so that you can see and hear him if you want to, but you can also ignore him if you want to. He purposely reveals himself in such a way that if it's in your heart to see and hear, you'll see and hear. But if it's not in your heart to see and hear, you won't see and hear. Because he wants a relationship that's, that's not coercive, but that's based on the, the, the openness of our heart. Here's a universal psychological phenomenon. We tend to see what we want to see. We tend to hear what we want to hear. We tend to experience what we want to and what we expect to experience. Some of you have been to therapists, and if you have, you may have seen something like this. This is a Rorschach test. Talked about this a couple months ago, but it applies here. Uh, this is an inkblot test. And the therapist holds us up and says, what do you see in this picture? What do you see in this picture? A boat? A what? A Prussian soldier. <laughs> oh. uh, someone said a deformed Buddha last, last service. Uh, okay, well, I, I asked Dan, the PowerPoint guy, what he saw. What he saw was Java of Star Wars. You know Java? <laughs> a disgusting being. He saw Java. I asked Fritz, our media guy, uh, what he saw, and Fritz saw a candy jar. But then as he looked closer, he said, no, it's an orange squeezer. You know, you can put the orange on the top and you squeeze it. Can you see that? I looked at it, and the first thing I saw was a person, person facing away from me sitting in the lotus position, like, a, like, like me meditating. See that? See? Kind of, kind of, sing out of, so Dan, you know, Dan sees a movie theme, Fritz sees a food theme, but I see a spiritual theme. So who's the more spiritual of us, I wonder? Hmm. My point here is this. Uh, the reason that therapists use inkblot tests is because what you see in the inkblot says a whole lot more about you than it does the inkblot. You see what you want to see, or at least what you expect to see, what's in your heart to see. If you're dealing with, with angry mother issues, you'll look at that and you'll say, oh, it's my angry mother and she's ready. She, I don't know what she's doing, but that's my angry mother. And, and if you're dealing with sexual issues, you'll look at this and you'll say, why are you showing me por pornographic pictures? And if you're dealing with fear, you'll look at that and you'll see a monster. And if you're dealing with depression, you'll look at that and you'll start to cry because it's such a sad scene. What you see, what you see is what you expect to see, what, what you want to see, maybe what you need to see. But what you see says a whole lot more about you than it does what's actually out there. I submit to you that all of life, all of life is like a Rorschach test. It is ambiguous. It doesn't interpret itself. We interpret it. And the way we interpret it, what we see, what we hear, what we experience, says more about us than it does about life in any objective sense of the term. We see what we want to see. The evidence of this is all around us. I saw a... Uh, a uh, documentary several months ago, and, and it was on drugs, and teenage use of drugs, and it had these two people on there, and their daughter had gotten involved in meth, methane, uh, yeah, is that what it's called, methane, crystal meth, uh, yeah, whatever it is, I, I obviously don't smoke it, or inject it, whatever you do with it, but I, it, it's like, a, it's rampant out there, <laughs> um, and, and the, the, these parents, are, their, their, their kid got involved in meth, and now that they know, they look back on it, and they, they, they said to themselves, how could we have been so stupid? 
The evidence was, was all over the place. Uh, she was, you know, her personality changed suddenly. She had a totally different group of friends. Her grades were dropping. Her attitude was just plummeting. Uh, you know, she was losing all of this, the, 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 this weight. They, they had found some weird paraphernalia in her bedroom. That's a clue. But she explained that it was some kind of a funky candle that kids were into. And uh, they believed her. And now, now that they know, they look back at it and they say, how could we have missed this? But you see, these two Christian parents didn't want to believe that their lovely Christian daughter could have possibly gotten involved in something like this. They didn't expect to see it. They didn't want to see it, so they didn't see it, even though it was right in front of them. I, I spoke with a lady several years ago who told me about how her husband came and confessed that he'd been involved in an affair for two years. And she's doing the same thing. Now that, now that she knows, she looks back and she goes, how could I possibly have missed that? There was a time when I came into the room and he was whispering on the phone. And, and uh, in fact, that happened several times. And there's weird phone numbers on our phone bill. But he, he had an explanation for that. And he was coming home late from the office, you know. And he just said it was work piling up. A couple times he didn't come home at all. He said he fell asleep, but he never used to do that. And I tried to call and he didn't answer the phone. And it was, he was feeling kind of distant. And we were hardly ever making love anymore. And, uh, and there's a smell of different, someone else's perfume. But, but I always just kept on dismissing it. See, this Christian woman didn't want to believe that her Christian husband could have gotten involved in an affair. She didn't want to believe that. She didn't expect to, 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 to see that. And so even though the evidence is right in front of her, she doesn't see that. We, all other things being equal, we see what we want to see. We hear what we want to hear. We experience what we expect to experience. And it's the same way in terms of our hearing God. Are we willing, are we expecting, are we desiring to hear from God? We will if we are. We won't if we aren't. You see this even in the ministry of Jesus. John chapter 12. Uh, it says this. Jesus is giving a, a hard teaching here. He says, The man who loves his life will lose it, but the person who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And he's not meaning that we're supposed to literally hate our life. What he's saying there is our allegiance to, to him should be so great that our life is rendered inconsequential. He's using Semitic hyperbole here. He says, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And then he prays, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Now you'd think that'd be like one of these giant heads in the Wizard of Oz showing up. I mean, what could be more obvious than this? But look, the crowd that was there and heard it, they said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoke through him. So here's Jesus giving this hard teaching. If you want to follow me, you've got to die to getting life from this world, trying to grab onto this life. If you lose your life, you'll find it. But uh, if you try to find your life, you're going to lose it. It's a hard teaching. A lot of people don't want to hear this teaching because it means you've got to give up on all your false, idolatrous ways of getting life. So some people have a vested interest in not, in not believing that Jesus is speaking the truth. The Pharisees in particular, they're, they're, they're religious people. And so they get their life from their religion. They get their life from believing the right things over and against all the people who believe the wrong things. And they get their life by being the holy people over against all the sinners. And they get their life by standing over all these people and judging them. That's how they do life, and it feels good. But if Jesus is the Son of God, and if what he's teaching is true, then that means that their way of getting life is really demonic. Their way of getting life is false. That means, that would, that would, that means they're going to have to seriously interrupt the way they do life. And so they have a vested interest in not believing in Jesus. They don't expect him to be the Son of God. They don't want him to be the Son of God. So even when a voice from heaven confirms that he is the Son of God, it thundered. Did you hear something? Yeah, I heard something. I don't know what it was, though. It certainly wasn't 
the Father saying, I've glorified my name. I wasn't that. Uh, I, I think it thundered. Yeah, but there's no clouds in the sky, and it, 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 it's, a, it's a bright, sunshiny day. Whatever. You see, you see what you want to see. You hear what you want to hear. All other things being equal. That's the way we do life. So the question is this, and we need to ask it honestly. Are we really willing to hear God? Are we really expecting to hear God? Are we willing to, to have our lives interrupted by God? I believe that I, at least, often am not. Um, I would like to think that I always am. In fact, I usually think I, I am. But what scares me is that I find out that I'm not even when I think I am. Uh, an illustration of this, I've given it before, but it bears repeating, is, is, uh, is the clearest one in my life. Uh, several years ago, the Lord told me to quit uh, Bethel College. I was a professor. At, at, it's called Bethel University now. And I really enjoyed teaching at Bethel University. I'd always seen myself as a professor uh, ever since I was a Christian. It's the one thing that I like. It's the one thing that I'm good at. And so I, 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 that was my dream. That was my plan. I seriously never thought that I would, you know, that the thing that I'd be doing in life was pastoring a church. That just wasn't on the charts. So I'm over there at Bethel, happy, just, you know, going along. But I begin to feel miserable about things. I begin to, um, you know, the way God finally gets my attention is by turning up the misery o meter. And, 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 and so things start to dry up. You know, I, uh, the th I used to get jazzed teaching classes, but now it's boring. And kids' questions used to intrigue me, but now they're irritating. And, and uh, grading papers, it was always tough, but now it's absolutely loathsome. And, and I'm just not enjoying it. My creativity is drying up. I, I can't write. Uh, nothing's coming out. You know, it's just, I feel like I'm drying up, uh, like, you know, I, like a prune on a, in the Sahara Desert. It's just, it's not going well. Prune in the Sahara Desert. Yes, that's... Exactly how I felt. <laughs> you see, now, there finally came a time when, when I, I, on my bed, I, I, I said, God, uh, I, I was laying on my bed, miserable on a Saturday afternoon. I finally said, God, are you trying to tell me that I'm supposed to leave Bethel College? Because if you are, I'll do it. And the minute I said that, and the minute I was willing to do that, it was like the big giant head from the Wizard of Oz showed up. It thundered, but it thundered in my heart. It said, duh, <laughs> duh. What have I been trying to tell you for nine months? For nine months, I've been trying to tell you that this is where I, I you know, how I want to lead you. Um, but you weren't listening. Now, see, I had a, a reason not to listen. You know, while I'm at Bethel, uh, you know, the tuition there, I'm told now, is like $28,000 with a room and board and tuition, $28,000. It was $20,000 when I was there. I had two daughters who just started Bethel College. And if you're teaching and your kids go to, to, to school, you get a 90% tuition break. There's some reasons not to hear that voice. <laughs> you do the math. Four years of this, okay? And, and the minute I leave, I'm assuming that, that, that that's going to go. Uh, you know, uh, there, there, there's other things as well. I, I uh, uh, had, you know, just put all this time and investment in my identity as part of this. If I make this decision, my income will immediately be cut in half. My expenses will more than quadruple. And on top of the whole thing, just prior to this, I felt led of God, my wife and I, to really make a ridiculous pledge uh, in terms of amount to the Growing in the Spirit campaign for the youth center and things like that. One that would be a stretch even with the job at Bethel, and now God's telling me to let go of that job. Uh, I've got some ulterior reasons not to hear this voice. And so for nine months, I'm feeling miserable, but I, in fact, I would go to God. God, why am I not feeling your life? Where's your presence? Why don't you talk to me anymore? But see, all the while, he, he was talking to me. It's just that 
Uh, this wasn't what I wanted to hear. It wasn't what I was expecting to hear. I didn't want my life interrupted in that way. And so I didn't hear it. I genuinely did not hear it. Uh, God is obvious enough if you have a heart to see it, but he's hidden so that you don't have to see it if you don't want to see it. And that's the situation that, that, that I was in at, at, at this time. The minute I said yes, there was a release. The creativity came back. And yeah, I'm not saying everything's been hunky-dory financially, but I'm not on the streets begging, okay? He takes, he, he takes care of me. Um, the point is this. You see what you expect to see, what you want to see. Joseph could have ignored this dream. He could have dismissed this dream. He could have gone on with his life as usual, but instead, he had the heart that was open to having his life interrupted by a dream of God. The question we need to ask ourselves is, do we have this Joseph mindset? Because here's what's true. God is not done talking to his people. In fact, there's a lot of passages in Scripture that suggest that this whole kingdom epic that we're in this last stage of world history is to be characterized by God continually talking to his people. Look at a couple of passages. Acts chapter 2. The Lord says, In the last days, which simply means in this last chapter, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. He goes on to say, Even on your, your slaves, even on your, 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 your female slaves, I will give the gift of prophecy. And what the Lord is saying there is this. In the last epoch of world history, whereas before I talked to a couple of select people, in this last epoch, I'm going to be talking to everybody. Uh, Jew and Gentile, male, female, free, bondservant, I'm going to be talking to everybody. That's one of the characteristics of the kingdom. Jesus says this in John chapter 10. He says, The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them. He goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because, because, because they know his voice. They recognize the voice of the master. God wants a people who recognize his voice, who can distinguish his voice from all the other voices outside of us and inside of us, and who march, who, who follow his lead, who march according to his orders. It says this in, in 2 Timothy. This is one of my life verses. Uh, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Paul is thinking of a Roman guard station in a foreign territory that was under Roman jurisdiction. And what he's, he, he's drawing an analogy between what it is to be a kingdom person and what it is to be a Roman guard. And he's saying, look at that Roman guard. That Roman guard is stationed in a foreign land. And he doesn't get so involved in the civilian affairs of that land uh, that he forgets that his job is to please his commanding officer. So you don't get too involved in the politics of the land or the squabbles, the ebbs and flows, the fads, the cultures of the land. Always remember, don't let yourself be distracted, that your one job in life is to keep your walkie-talkie on and to day by day, moment by moment, be talking to your commanding officer and to have it in your heart that your, your one ambition, your one job, is to obey your commanding officer. Kingdom people are to be characterized by our willingness to pay attention to what other people dismiss, uh, to expect to see and to want to see God speaking to us, whether it's through dreams or through visions or still small voices or intuitions or prophetic words, to be a people who are characterized by having our walkie-talkie on. Some part of our internal world is tuned into his station so that when he gives a message, when he gives a revelation, when he gives a direction, we're ready to drop what we're doing, have our life interrupted, 
and go according to his plans. God wants a flock of sheep who know his voice. God wants an army who've got their walkie-talkies on. What happens in our lives so often, and it's pervasive in American Christianity today, is that we have a, 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 a people, and we are a people, who believe in Jesus, and that's wonderful, and we believe in the Bible, and that's wonderful, and we go to church, and that's wonderful, and we pray on occasion, and that's wonderful, and we put our money in the plate, and that's wonderful. But the rest of our life, the majority of our life, is lived in our own head. We talk to ourselves, but it's an internal conversation. So we do, we do what we plan on doing. We do what we want to do. We carry out our own dreams and our own plans and our own schemes and our own agendas. And we don't, on a moment-by-moment basis, invite God in on that discussion. We compartmentalize our Christianity to a Sunday morning thing or an or a occasional prayer thing or, or, or whatever. Where what God wants is to us to be a, a like a Roman guard, who though we're in this foreign land, we don't get so distracted by the civilian affairs that are going on that we turn our walkie-talkie off. Some part of our attention is always going like this: "Speak, Lord, I am listening. Speak, Lord, I am listening." When that walkie-talkie gets turned off, what you get is 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 a religious group who theoretically believes certain things, but their everyday life is pretty much as it would be, even if what they believed was not true. So you get a people who look pretty much like the culture at large, act pretty much like the culture at large, plan their days pretty much, pretty much like the, the, the culture at large. It's just that they believe the religious things in the culture a little more sincerely than the other people do. But I submit to you that that is not God's plan. Jesus didn't die to create that. What Jesus died for was to create an army of people who are listening to his voice a strategic army, a military unit that subversively spreads the kingdom of God in this uh, demonically oppressed world and tears down strongholds while we advance the truth of God and the love of God in all areas of life. What God wants, what Jesus died for, is a people who know his voice, a people who put his voice over their own voice, a people who put his will over their own will, a people who put his plans over their own plans, a people who put his dreams over their own dreams. A people who put his call over their own call. A people who put allegiance to him above every other allegiance that is in the world. Even allegiance to our own life. Allegiance to our family. Allegiance to our country. Allegiance to our business. Allegiance to anything else. It's dwarfed in significance in comparison to our allegiance to him. So the question we need to ask is, do we have our walkie-talkies on right now? And then tomorrow morning and throughout the day is, is part of our inner world listening to the voice of God. Let me ask it this way. When was the last time you did something that you yourself didn't plan on doing? It wasn't just the result of your own planning. Think about that. Even better, when was the last time you or I had or changed a plan that we were doing because we felt God telling us to do something else. When, in other words, was the last time we allowed God to interrupt our lives? What was the last time that we surrendered that over to him? And the question we have to, this isn't to shame us like, oh, we're such miserable Christians. The, 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 the point is to raise our awareness uh, and, and to really ask the question, are we really willing to let our lives being interrupted? Are we willing to let God tell us where to live? Are we willing to let God tell us what kind of car to drive? If he has an 
opinion on that? Are we willing to let God tell us who we're supposed to marry? Are we willing to let God tell us what occupation we're supposed to go into? Are we willing to let God tell us what kind of house we're supposed to live in? Are we willing to let God direct our steps on a day-by-day basis? You see, and I'm not saying that we need to get a direct word from God for every particular decision we make. Like, don't do anything until God tells you to do it. Like, you can't buy a house unless God told you to buy that house. Uh, Some people get a little strange with this. I met a lady uh, a number of years ago who said she prayed over what kind of cereal to eat in the morning. Father, is it your will to have Wheaties or Cocoa Puffs? Uh, And and, that's pushing it a little far. You know, God gave you a brain, so use your brain. You can make some of your own decisions. Yes. So make your plans. There's nothing wrong with that. Have your dreams. Nothing wrong with that. Pursue those things. Nothing wrong with that. But what I'm asking is this. Are you willing to drop all of that if God decides he wants to interrupt your plans? Do you have a heart, a Joseph kind of heart, that is listening to see and expect the voice of God interfering with your life? The only way to get that is to cultivate the kind of heart that says yes to God, that says, Lord, I'm open. Whatever you say, however you say it, I'll let go of what I'm doing and do your will. And when you begin to do that, kingdom walk, the kingdom walk begins to get kind of interesting. You also look like a loony sometimes. But we've got to be willing to do that. Uh, I submit this to you. If your Christianity is rather boring, and most people's Christianity is, it might be because your walkie-talkie is off. If you're doing the religious thing where you've got your Christianity and you think about it on Sunday morning and occasionally throughout the week, maybe here and there during prayer time or special religious times, if you're compartmentalizing your kingdom walk, if your relationship with God is mainly theoretical, that's pretty boring. Nothing happens that you didn't plan to happen. It's all kind of pre-scripted. But when you dial up Jesus Christ and you keep him on the dial throughout the day, and you allow him to direct you here or there, now things get pretty interesting. They also may get very inconvenient. But, but now Christianity becomes exciting. In fact, it can become, and I think it should become, an adventure. We were made to live on the edge, folks. Uh, the spirit inside of us is anything but mediocre. And when you begin to walk with God, things can happen, and he'll direct you in areas that you didn't plan on going. And that's when the adventure starts. Whatever else you say about Mary and Joseph, they had a hard life. That was not an easy life. I would, no one would desire to have that kind of life, but you've got to give them this. It wasn't boring. It wasn't boring. I mean, uh, you know, no one planned for this to happen. I've got to believe there were times where they're sitting down there in Egypt and they can't talk to anybody because they don't know the language and they don't know the customs and they feel out of place. And Joseph is you know, scrambling every day to try to you know, pick up an odd job to put some food on the table. But there had to be times, I've got to believe, where they looked at each other and they started laughing, saying, how on earth do we get in this situation? I mean, this is wild. This is crazy. What are we doing here? You followed that stupid dream, you know? Uh, but, but, and then the king of Judea is chasing you. I mean, that, that's scary, but it, it's an adventure. They're aware that they're part of something huge. They're not sure what. We usually aren't. But God's up to something, and we get to be used in that. And so, God, give us a dream. Give us a vision. Give us a word. Give, us me, give, give me an impression. Guide my steps. And now things begin to get very interesting. It looks kind of like this. Real-life examples, not all my own. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're sitting down at a restaurant, and, you, and part of your brain is tuned in. It's open to the Lord interrupting whatever you're doing. And, and giving you direction. So as you're eating and having your fun, all of a sudden you notice a lady across the, uh, uh, the room on the other side of the restaurant, and she's cleaning tables. And all of a sudden you get an impression, something about her kids and, and it, it being tough for her. And then you get an impression that you're supposed to empty her wallet, your wallet out and give it to her. You got $50 in there. 
Uh, that means that you don't know how you're going to pay for the next three meals you've got to you know, pay for since you're on the road, but the voice says or the impression says or whatever it is, the intuition says, trust me on this, just go with it. And if you have to fast, you could lose a couple pounds. It won't, won't kill you. So you get up and you go to the lady and you say, you know what, I, you know, this is weird, but I just feel like I'm supposed to do this because God loves you. And you give her $50. And then you don't throw in a little chick track or do some other religious thing. Just give her the money, bless her, and you walk away. That's what the kingdom is all about. Responding to God on a moment-by-moment basis. God's always talking, but are we listening? You're outside, and it's three below zero, and you just got your nice new $300 coat, and that's a wonderful thing. Nothing against that, as long as you're supposed to wear it. But then you see this person, and, and, and all they got is a sweater, and then something inside of you. Maybe it was a dream you had the night before. Maybe it's just a kind of a picture you get in your mind or an intuition. However it is, God speaks in a variety of subtle ways. But you know inside that you're supposed to give that new coat to that person. So you go over to them and, you know, the God says, you, you got another one back home and, and you're not going to freeze and they need it more than you do. So you give them this and you just say, you know what, the Lord loves you and wants you to be warm and he told me to give this to you and I know that sounds kind of weird, but I'm, I'm a kind of weird person and I really believe God is real. Multitude of examples like that, we give God an opportunity to show up and prove his reality. Uh, you get an intuition, you're supposed to call a friend. Now, 999 out of 1,000 people would just dismiss that. But you're listening, so you think, I'll call my friend. Turns out, they just got a call from the hospital that their son was in a car wreck, and, and they're distraught, so now you can pray with them over the phone and meet him down there at the hospital. See, if, if we're listening, if we're the body that's listening to the head, the head can tell us where to go, what to do. He sees all the variables, and so he says, okay, right now, but it's a moment-by-moment -moment thing. Okay, oh, you over here, you over there, do this over there. Say that to that person. Sometimes it's life-changing stuff that God will, 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 will call us to. Um, you know, what if God says, I, I want you to downsize your house? In fact, I want you to move to this different area. Are we willing to let our lives be that interrupted? Um, you know, that 30 years ago, 30 years ago, I was planning, and, and I, was, I just came back to the Lord. I was a Christian, and I backslid, and I was coming back to God. But my dream at the time was to be a, the best drummer in the world. That, that's basically it. Is that too much to ask for? I want to be the best drummer in the world. And uh, so I was playing with, at the, at the, with the University Jazz Ensemble. And that was my dream. And God began to deal with me on this, and typically I began to ignore him, so he began to make me miserable. That's how we do it. And finally, at Northrop Auditorium, I think it was 1977, you know, you would think I, I'm fulfilling my dream. Here it is, Northrop, and the place is packed, and our jazz band is rocking, and we were really good, and I did the best drum solo I've ever done in my life, you know, and just when you think this would be the peak experience, I'm feeling miserable. And so I go up to the person, the director, and I gave him my sticks, and I said, I'm not supposed to be here. And he goes, what? I said, it's a God thing. I can't explain it. I'm not, I'm not supposed to be here. Uh, you will look loony sometimes doing this sort of thing, but I've never regretted it. And you know what? You never will regret it. When you listen to God, it can be inconvenient. It can be painful at the time. It may mean letting go of some of your dreams, but you will never regret it. I'm so glad I made that decision. I know, no, it, it, amen. There's nothing wrong with being a drummer if that's where God wants you to be. But there's something very wrong with being it or being anywhere that God doesn't want you to be. Uh, listen to the voice, dial him up, stay tuned, and obey his voice. Now, I want to end with this one quick question, because I know a lot of you are asking this. Isn't this the kind of thing that loony people believe? <laughs> You're cooking for Cocoa Buffs, cooking for Cocoa Buffs. You know, 
people out there who really hear God, and they're, they're weird, I mean, and there are a lot of, a lot of people with, with, with issues who hear God's voice. I got that. Believe me, I got that. Uh, I get it a lot, all right? Um, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So the question is, how do you know when it's really you? Because you know, there are some people who think every thought they think is God-given, and, and that's not the case either. Um, how do you know when it's just you, and how do you know when it's God? And, and I'll just lay out this real quick criteria, and then we're going to uh, end. There's two conditions for this criteria to work. Number one, you're minimally sane. All right? Uh, that's an important condition. If you're not, well, if you're not, you probably don't know that you're not, so this isn't doing much good. But they say that one out of 50 people are, could be institutionalized that are walking on the street. So the estimate, there's probably about 40 of you out there. So, no. <laughs> Who is it? <laughs> okay. But if you're minimally sane, and see, if you're not, God bless you, get some medication, and then come back and we'll talk. <laughs> in fact, God can use insane people too. It's just you can't tell when it's God and when it's them. But if you're minimally sane, and number two, Jesus Christ really is the center of your life. Because to the degree that that's not true, you can't trust your, your own heart. Uh, but if you're minimally sane and Jesus Christ, your desire is to please your commanding officer, I encourage you to trust your intuition, what we today would call intuition, because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and God wants to talk to you. You know your own heart if you're really committed to doing his will. Now, we can be easily self-deceived. I got that. But if your heart's desire is to walk with God and you're minimally sane, you can, all other things being equal, trust your heart. Here's a criteria I'll leave you with. Ask yourself this question. You get a word, an impression about doing something that maybe is a little bit odd. Uh, ask yourself this question. If kingdom fruit would result from it, even if it is just you and not God, and if the only downside of being wrong is that you'll be inconvenienced and or you might look a little silly, go for it. Go for it. Uh, what have you really got to lose? So, you know, you had this little intuition that you're supposed to give this lady $50. You know, you die and you go to heaven and God says, I didn't tell you to do that. Uh, but, you know, it was a good idea. Uh, how, how bad is that? You're out 50 bucks. She's up 50 bucks. You looked a little bit strange. So what? She needed the money more than you. It still was a good thing to do. So, so if it's a kingdom thing, if it, will, if it will bear kingdom fruit, and the only downside is going to be inconvenience you or disrupt your life a little bit, go for it. And as you do that, as you, as you learn to listen to your heart, the Holy Spirit's speaking in your heart. You, you live more by intuition than just your common sense. As you do that, you begin to learn the Master's voice. And now you become a person who's, who's useful to the kingdom. God can tell you to go here, there, and the other thing. When most people are just obeying their culturally conditioned neurons popping in their brain, kingdom people have a different antenna up. We march to a different drummer. We dance to different music. It's, 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 it's the beat. It's the music of our good shepherd, our commanding officer. And we are his body. And God orchestrates us according to his plan. We do it collectively. We do it individually. I encourage you, cultivate the kind of Joseph heart that is willing to let your life be interrupted on a daily basis and sometimes on a career and life basis by the voice of God. Amen. Let's stand. And uh, I'm going to close with a prayer. I want to say that if you have any need that you would like to have people pray for, uh, we have prayer teams that will be up here, and we encourage you to come forward and get prayer for those needs. If you're not a kingdom person here this morning, you've never surrendered your life to Christ, I encourage you to do that today. What a great day to do it. This is the time to do it. Uh, up here to my right and your left will be uh, uh, up at this table. There's a person who would love to explain to you uh, how simple that is and get you uh, ushered in on the kingdom walk.
So Father, as we leave this place, we pray, Lord, that you would be teaching us to have open ears, open eyes, open hearts, open minds, open spirits that are, that are willing to hear you, that expect to hear you, because you're always talking, and, and who are willing to obey you when we hear you, Lord God. We are your people, use us. We are your sheep, lead us. We are your body, guide us. That we might, Lord, bring the kingdom this week into this world more than it was last week. Use us in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Go out and build the kingdom.